hang out for the night and just chill and memorize verses and have some good quiet time and stuff. So let me pray before we get into this. Oh, Holy Spirit, we are so glad to be here. We are so glad for everybody here. And uh, I, I especially thank you for those that might be new or just maybe they didn't want to come. Maybe they fought through that feeling. They got here. Maybe there's something going on that they really feel they need prayer for or they need to be dislodged in life. I pray for them and I pray for all of us to be opened up. I I like that first song we sang, Lord. We do pray for an awakening, a movement of your Holy Spirit in our lives. So we pray that you would mark off this property. And this building, that even the carpet we're standing on would be holy ground. We think of Joshua as he's standing before Jericho and meets the commander of the army of the Lord on the battlefield. And he says, take off your sandals for where you are standing is holy ground. We ask, Lord Jesus, that we would consider this place, this, this moment right now to be holy ground where you speak to us. Not Jason, not anybody else. But you, you are speaking to us and we ask that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what you're saying. So push away anything that would bring confusion or cloudiness or bitterness or anger or cynicism and just make us open to yourself. Let us look past all the things that would distract us right now so we can look into your face and be blessed. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Last sermon in our four-part series. Oh, go ahead. Amen. All right now. Oh, you got one. Uh-huh. Amen. I you know what? I'm just I'm just going to say I'm going to trust you guys cuz I don't I haven't memorized those myself. So, here you go. You get a Bible. All right. Amen. I uh, see it takes people to to bake a little while before they open their mouths. Now you're you can grab a sweatshirt. There's some back on those back chairs, but I don't know your size, so I don't want to grab it for you. But um, you're smaller than me, though I think, <laughs> at least in this area and like right here, you're smaller than me, so I won't guess your size. But uh, fourth fourth and final series in our uh, sermon, uh, uh, learning to abide in the Word of God. Uh, I've really enjoyed this short series, and next, not next week, but the week after, we're going to start another series, four weeks in uh, witness, called all, so all that may, all, so all, that all may know, or something like that. Anyway, but, um, but this has been, uh, we're doing these three series because we've been praying for our church to grow in worship, word, and witness, right? And so this is our second one, and we're going into the last one, and I've been excited about these. Um, so what I want you to hear today is that becoming a new, new in Christ, becoming a Christian, becoming new in Christ means living in light of God's word, right? 
By studying Scripture, by studying the Word of God in community, we grow into spiritual maturity in Christ with the help of other fellow Christians. So that's all I want to say. Short sermon. We can all go home. Now, um, but that's, that's really what I want you to go home with today, all right? Um, we are familiar with the biblical concept of new birth, as Jesus uh, said to uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, you must be born again. Mm-mm-mm, jasmine lime green tea. That's yummy stuff right there. I don't need the sugar, but I need the taste. Anyway, um, but we're familiar with that, that, that concept of new birth, right? Ephesians uh, chapter 2 describes it this way. You were dead in your transgressions and sin, Ephesians 2 verse 1. And then he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to say, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy uh, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Um, and, and it is by grace you have been saved. And that, that is like the quintessential you know, evangelical rally cry, right? That, that kind of stuff. Um, so what we see is that we have, we have been reborn as a result of Jesus. If you're in Christ, you've given your life to Christ, you've been reborn into Christ. And that is something that we just sang, actually, that is not of ourselves. We didn't do anything to get it. We didn't do anything to obtain it. We didn't have to be perfect to get it. Nothing. It was a free gift by God to us. And... Um, we know that birth is a singular moment, right? You're only born, born once, right? You're not born twice. You're not born three times. You're only born once. And spiritual birth is the same thing in a sense. And, but growth is a lifetime, isn't it? We grow older. Uh, spiritual growth is a lifetime. Like babies, we must grow up as we grow old. Um, we don't become old infants, Right? relying solely on the fire insurance of salvation in our lives, you know, just saying we have been reborn in Christ and then just kind of going through life doing whatever we want to do is really indicative that new birth hasn't actually happened to us. And and we need to question that, not in a punitive way. I'm not saying that in a punitive way, but in an invitational way. We really do need to question that. So a Christian is born into new life, And that new life is marked by the heart and mind of God, right? Marked by the heart and mind of God. And we are transformed in our thinking and our lifestyle due to being in Christ. Uh, Colossians states that once we are made new, that uh, that moment where we are restored to relationship with God the Father through the work of God the Son on the cross, right, that the penalty of sin is satisfied. Amen to that. The penalty of sin is satisfied. In other words, God's wrath is on our sin is averted by Jesus. Our God's wrath on our lives is averted by Jesus. And God does have wrath against sin. A lot of people are out there teaching that that is not the case these days, and I would disagree, right? Um, but now we have been hidden with Christ and God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. Right? And that's, that's a great positional truth about you. Right? So, but, but as we live, the, the lingering effects of, of the old self, the old man, the old sinful self, must be cast off as we grow into spiritual maturity. So we have something to do. We, we have something to live out here. Growth can only happen as we allow God's word to inform us and transform us uh, as we live in community with each other, right? 
So Colossians 3, starting in verse 1, if you want to turn in your pew Bibles, and I would urge you to do so, so you can read along with me, it's page 806, to get you there really quickly. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1, and keep your Bible open on your lap, because we're going to read this piecemeal um, throughout this, this sermon. So, but in this passage, it, it addresses this growth, right? Uh, it says, starting in verse 1, as I said, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's your position with Jesus, right? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Good promise, right? So our minds should be set on the things of God due to our having been raised with Christ and positioned with him in the heavenly realms. Now, I want to stop there and say that this is not hyper-spiritualization, right? This is not sort of uh, making us out, out of touch with reality, making us out of touch with the here and now. We are rational mature beings. That's what Christ has created us to be, and that's what we're growing into. Um, So strangeness is not our goal at all, but godliness is our goal, all right? So we, we, we live by a rational pursuit of truth and love that is reflective of his heart and his mind, in this, in this world. Everything we do, therefore, becomes viewed through the lens of Christ and his resurrection. Not just Sunday mornings, but work, but friendships, family, all situations, right? So practically speaking, what that means for us as Christians is that we begin to live right now, or we attempt to live right now, as to how we would live in heaven, right? So we don't just have fire insurance in Jesus, we are transformed to live a new life, a new different life, right? As a matter of fact, none of this can be understood without an understanding of the kingdom of God. I honestly believe that. You know, um, we know that Jesus, if you've been around church long enough, you've heard these kinds of things, but Jesus ushered in the first fruits of the kingdom of God in his coming to earth, but it has yet to be fully established as God continually right now calls people across the globe back to himself, right? And so think of it like this. Think of it as a kingdom that was, you know, in in the past had been over, overrun or over, overtaken by its enemy. And all its people had been scattered across the globe to all these different lands and places far and wide. And the king is still king to them, but he had fled into isolation. And he was constantly sending back reminders and emissaries back to tell the people that he loved so much uh, what his kingdom had been like and what it will be like in the future, Right? And now he has returned, he has paid the ransom for all of his people by the sacrifice of his own son, and as a result, he's taken his throne again, and he's established his kingdom once more, and he has now sent emissaries around the world, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, right? Sent emissaries all around the world to to all the surrounding lands to say, come back home, come back to the kingdom, it's now safe to return. Amen to that. And currently, the enemy, having lost his power, seeks, the only thing he can do is seek to disrupt that renewal, disrupt that process as best he can until the king has 
finally established his kingdom and finality. So the king has broken the back of his enemy and given his people all that they need for the journey home during this time in history, right? And on that journey, we find out that we have personal responsibility in our own spiritual formation. Dallas Willard always said, God is not against uh, effort, but he is against earning. We don't earn our salvations, Ephesians chapter 2, but we do make effort in our Christian walk to become more and more like Christ. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 state this, have nothing to do with godless myths. I can't stand that word. I always want to say myths. Myths and old wives' tales. In other words, all those cosmologies, all those worldviews that you hear out there spouted to you from culture all the time have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them, right? Uh, Rather, train yourself to be godly. There it is. We have something to do here. We, we, this is a tr- there is something to grow in. For physical training is, is of some value. All you young guys that are like pumping iron out there all the time, trying to get buff for the ladies, that has some value, <laughs> maybe. But godliness has value for all things. All things. Holding promise for both the pr- this present life and the life to come. In other words, the kingdom now, the kingdom coming fully in the future, right? Now, we've been, what, we, what this says is that we've been given all that we need for this life of godliness. 2 Peter 1, 3-5 states, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him. Now, get that word in your brain, knowledge of Him, or that phrase, knowledge of Him, through uh, knowledge of Him who called us by His glory and His goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Isn't that a wonderful thought, that you can actually participate in the divine nature? That's, I, I just, like, I, I got stuck on that while I was writing this sermon. Such a great little phrase. Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Amen, right. The penalty of sin has been paid. The wrath of God adverted on us in Christ. But we still journey in a hostile land with the lingering effects of sin upon us which need to be grown through, need to be cast off. So what we find out is thought and desire and, 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 and our hearts are reordered and redirected towards the heart of God in the Christian life. Now what are evil desires? And what's to be done about them? Right? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, Colossians elaborates a little further in verse 5, starting there. Although we understand that this is not an exhaustive list. We get much more in in the whole council of scriptures. But he does say a few things here. He says, put to death. Now, that is a strong term. It doesn't say live with or are you going to have to deal with this for a while. He says, put to death. Kill it off. Put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Ephesians 2, right? Now, I want to be sober and honest about this with a a heart of compassion towards anybody that struggles. But let's be sober and honest about what this says within our current cultural context. 
right? Sexual immorality in the Bible is defined as lust, lustful thoughts towards another. It's defined as sex outside of the marriage covenant. It's defined as homosexuality, bisexuality, bestiality, and all the like. There's, it covers it pretty clearly. But other sins are no less or greater importance than these or are uh, damaging than these. Gr- greed is also in this list, right? You know, having an evil desire, by the way, does not make you an evil person necessarily, right? But what you do with that desire does matter in the Christian life, right? I feel greedy sometimes, but, you know, to act on it would be to indulge a sinful desire which would not be reflective of God's mind and God's heart in my life and in my walk. So we are called to put to death such desires since they're damaging to the created order that God established. They don't bring the life and the fullness that God wants us to have. To say that any of these things are allowed now, in this point in history, under some revised progressive Christian ethic, deviating from common church doctrine throughout the ages, is to say that the word of God is not God-breathed, and is not authoritative for all of life. Now, if you're in a situation and you've been living in a way that there's not judgment on you, we're not casting, I'm not casting judgment on you in that way, but it it may mean that the Lord needs to convict your heart, and that's fine. That's fine, because conviction brings joy and freedom. All right, so just remember that. Don't get upset with me. But um, you you might get upset with me, I don't know. But, But accommodation in these ways... We must resist at all costs. Why? We have to resist these accommodations in the Christian life lest we lose the power of the gospel at its core. Once we start to redefine what what Scripture says or we pick and choose, we we lose the, the essence of the gospel at its core. It loses its power. It's no longer the gospel, right? It continues, verse 8. But now you must Uh, Also, rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self. Listen to that language. Taken off and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Yourself, your new self, is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Now, if there's any doubt that the Christian life, that the Christian church is against racism, if there's any doubt, let's just read verse 11. It says, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. That covers the whole gamut. Amen. 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 Let's not believe the lies that Christians are racist. We are not. We've never been directed to be really racist. Some people have twisted the word to say that. Some. But the church as a whole is not racist. We can't be. It's not the heart and mind of God. As a matter of fact, there, in my opinion, and I think I'm right, <clears throat> in my opinion, there is only one human race. There is only one human race. And that human race is made up of various ethnic groups across the world, right? Between which God has always called for love and respect. God has called us from the very beginning to go and reach the nations, ethnic groups. That's what that is translated as. 
And language does have power, doesn't it? We know that. Looking at all peoples of this world as part of the human race and not a conglomeration of races that are all different than us, but it better helps us to, you know, to view everybody as one race and people that are worthy of love and respect as God's created beings. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> oh, that felt good. Amens feel good. Um, so we're no longer marked by, this, by the old, dead, sinful self caught up in all these distorted sexual longings, jealousy, greed, anger, contempt, and other vices which replaced God in our lives before in how we lived, right? But living in light of Christ means killing this stuff off as we are renewed in knowledge. And that's how we kill it off. We allow the knowledge of God that we obtain through the, through the word and in Christian community to kill this stuff off in us, right? Like Romans 12, 1 and 2 dictates, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, our proper worship, right? Our proper, we don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Allowing the new self, sort of transformed by Christ, to shine through in all that we are, say, and do, so we don't take a light view of sin. Christians don't take a light view of sin. Rather, we understand how deeply damaging and harmful these things are to us and to God and to others, to relationships. And how they rob the life that God intended for, uh, to create and foster in this world. And intends to create and foster in this world. So we don't look, we don't harp on every little thing. We, we practice forgiveness, but we don't look at small infractions as harmless either. Right? We repent consistently in the Christian life. Confessing our sin to one another. James 1, 5, 16, I think it is. Ja no, James 5, 16. And, and that is in order that we don't place ourselves again under the bondage of sin because it robs us of life and it robs the people around us of life, right? So no longer are we bound by labels, by cultural belief systems, but we are now free in Christ who binds us all together in unity as the body of Christ, right? As holy and beloved in Christ, the new self is now characterized by things like compassion and kindness and humility and patience and forgiveness and love and things like that. Now, do we always reflect those things? No, we don't. But we're not hypocrites. Everybody says church is hypocrites. That's, that is not true. We are the most realistic about what we are inside these walls. We really are. We're not always perfect. We know that we fall and stumble in this stuff. But there, we also know, thank God, that there is grace for our stumbling. Right? There is. There is grace for our stumbling. But there is, even though there's grace for our stumbling, there is a higher calling away from these things altogether. Right? It's interesting to watch the prisoners that uh, Donna mentioned in our prison fellowship uh, ministry class and they're, they're sort of wrestling with this new Christian ethic. You can just see their minds working as we talk. 
And maybe hearing for the first time about God's heart and God's mind on their lives, realizing that their past actions that were driven along by these errant evil desires in life did them or anyone around them absolutely no good. Look where it landed them. Seeing how now they have been deceived, right? They recognize that they've been deceived, but they also now have a new choice to make to follow Christ and better not only their own lives, but everybody's life around them, even inside those prison walls. They know better than most of us, right? Where that old self leads. They sit there in that cell 24-7 thinking about that. Pray for them. Nine guys, three, of Mo- three Muslims, many, a handful of them are lifers for murder. Pray for them. Pray that they would come to Christ and they would begin to be a witness to their, their cellmates and their fellow prisoners. So let's recount really quick. We must regard ourselves as having, having been hidden away with, Christ and, uh, with God in Christ. We, we must regard ourselves as being new, newly born, taking on his heart and mind. In our difficult journey through life, we are to put to death the evil desires that we used to live in before. We are to regard our old self as to having been, as to having been taken off and to, and, and to put on the new self in Christ, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Where do you get the knowledge from? You get it from the scriptures, right? Now, I want you to notice how much of scripture deals with your thinking. Knowledge, understanding, getting it into you, like we talked about last week with memorization. Getting it into you, having your mind be renewed. A lot of it says that, right? Debated how I wanted to do this next section. Close your eyes. I want you to use your imagination. Imagine yourself having been bitten by a poisonous viper and you're dead. But Jesus walks by and he looks down at you and he sits and he kneels and he puts your head on his lap and he breathes life back into your nostrils and you gasp. <gasps> And you open your eyes. There he is. And your brain's not fully there. You're you're in a stupor. You have this poison from this snake still coursing through your veins. And you're kind of in a state of delirium. Your, Your thoughts aren't clear. But Jesus cradles your head in his lap. And he starts to whisper truth in your ear. Truth as to who you are and who he is to you. And your thoughts start to become reordered. You start to come out of your your delirium as to what and who you are as you gaze into his stare. Amen. That's a good picture. Colossians continues, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, he chose you. He chose to stop and breathe life back into you. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if, you, if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
Now I want you to listen intently to that language. Clothe yourselves. Put on. Intentionally make the effort to pursue these things in life. Wouldn't the world be a better place if everybody did that? <laughs> right? You know, we wear clothes on the outside of ourselves. They are often a source of pride and a source of our style. Some people are more stylish than others. Uh, it's, but it's what we want people to see about ourselves. Today I wore my old nasty cowboy boots. Love my cowboy boots, but I'm probably going to have to throw them away. <laughs> my wife hates them, right? She's like, yeah, you got to get rid of those. But in Christ, we desire to, for people to see the heart and the mind of Jesus when they look at us. Indicative, something indicative of his thinking and his, his big heart and his desires, right? So we bear with and we forgive each other because Christ forgave us. Averting our eternal destruction to that extent. Although we were hostile towards God in our former state. We did nothing to earn that. So our first step forward is always love. Now don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand me. Because it's love is defined by the scriptures. And love defined by the scriptures is not what love is in culture. Right? It is love with teeth. It is love with intentionality. It is love with the better of the person before you in mind. It is active love. It means you do something. You don't just say something. Right? Love doesn't mean agreement with just any thought or behavior in this world. It just doesn't mean that. It doesn't. Love doesn't mean we can't have a sharp word with someone. As a matter of fact, Love means we should admonish another person when we see the wrong, wrong thinking or wrong behavior in their life because it's not good for them. Love is committed to the best of the person standing before us, which is sometimes contrary to their own evil desires that they want to act out in their life. Even though it feels really good, it's maybe not good for you. Anyone who has a child knows that uh, it is possible, <laughs> it is very possible, to love somebody to death, but really wanting to kill them at different times, right? That with coming into sharp disagreement and even yelling at them for their wrongdoing. Discipline is loving. Discipline is absolutely loving. Acquiescence or tolerance of sin is not loving, but that's not how the world defines it today, right? Let's wrap up. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So listen to that. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Allow it. Be open to it. Pursue it. Get it in there, right? Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Be thankful. Choose to be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you. Let's listen to that. Let the message of Christ, the knowledge, the truth, dwell in you. Uh, dwell among you richly as you, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. 
N.T. Wright said this. I think it's going to be on the screen. I'm not sure. The genuinely human existence which Paul commands can't be reached except through belief in the forgiving love of God. Right? Ephesians 2. Nor can it be reached in isolation. Individualism, rightly prized by many Christians as a guard against the dangerous idea that membership in the church makes individual belief and conduct a matter of secondary importance. It is not secondary. Now listen to that. That means you can't just come here on a Sunday, say you're a Christian, and then go do whatever you want in life. That's, that's not what it's saying, right? That you actually have to wrestle with who Jesus is and come to these things to yourself, right? Now you can go through the process here. I'm not saying that, but... Then he continues, this can, access, this can easily be twisted into the equally dangerous notion that membership in the church itself is of comparative significance. In other words, you cannot do this alone. You cannot walk the Christian life alone. You can't watch on Zoom and never have a relationship with another believer. You can't listen to a podcast and just go do whatever you want in life and never be a part of the local physical body of Christ. I kind of believe this stuff, don't I? Amen. 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 God intends Christian behavior, he says, to be reinforced and upheld by friendship, community, or company, teaching, counseling, and loving criticism of other Christians. Not to appreciate this is to lap into the arrogant independence of one's fellow human beings. Worse, one's fellow Christians, which is a sign not of the new life, but of the old. In other words, it's indicative that maybe new birth has not happened. Like we, like we say often, and people have been quoted as saying, love without truth lies. Think about this statement. Love without truth lies. Truth without love kills. And we've all experienced both of those. But both of those, truth and love, are reinforced and maintained in Christian community. Or maybe I should add, orthodox historical Christian community. So we are called to one body, verse 15, right? And it's through this body that we learn to let the word of Christ dwell in us, right? Through community, we teach and we encourage and we worship and we sing and we grow towards maturity together so that in all things... Not just in church life, we, go in, we do them in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? Growing in spiritual maturity isn't meant to be done alone, but in community, right? That's why worship that Natalie leads and George Harrison over here from the Beatles. He looks like George Harrison from the Beatles. That's why what they do up here is so important. It's not just, we're not just singing songs. We are worshiping the Lord. We are coming into the throne room of God. And it's extremely important. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, help must come from the outside, and it has come, and comes daily and anew in the word of Jesus Christ. In other words, the, the scriptures are revealed by God to us as his very words. They come from the outside into us, right? I didn't come up with it on my own. Neither did any of the writers of the New Testament or the Old Testament. They were inspired to write this stuff. Um, so help must come from the outside, and it has come 
comes, uh, comes daily and anew in the word of Jesus Christ, bringing redemption, righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. But God has put his word into the mouth of people in order that it may be communicated to other people. When one person is struck by the word, they speak it to others. God has willed we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother or sister. How we share what we say to each other. We went out with the halls uh, Friday night. with a fresco out in Newtown Square. Good, good dinner together. But just speaking truth to each other is beautiful, right? It's encouraging. Uh, so God has willed we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother or sister in the mouth of a person. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and discouraged, for by themselves they can't help themselves without belying the truth. They need their brother or sister uh, as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. They need their brother or sister solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in their own heart is weaker than the Christ of the word of their brother or sister. Their own heart is uncertain. Their brother's is sure. Now he's not saying that the Holy Spirit is weaker in you than in somebody else. What he's saying is we're better together, right? There's great value in studying the Word of God together as a body. Like the Berean Jews in Acts 17, verse 11, they, who sought to examine the Scriptures daily so that they could prove what Paul was saying to them was actually true, we should also seek to test the words of others in light of the biblical, biblical uh text and and to desire to reach a reasonable level of literacy in it right amen see unity is not found in an acquiescence and tolerance can't be it can't that, that it doesn't work that way unity is found in agreement unity is found in agreement under one thing which is the beauty of the christian life if you think about it given that we point to the scriptures as the final authority of life and faith. It's the one thing that we can be sure of. Not that every detail is clear, mind you, but we defer to the scriptures and we have agreement on the major issues, which gives us the room to bear with each other in the exploration of the minors, the things that are sort of mysterious or gray and we don't really get. But the church has agreed on the majors for centuries. The sad truth is that even though the biblical text is more available than at, at any other time in history right now, we interact with it less and less and less and less, don't we? It's kind of like, you know, you want something so bad and you get it and you're so into it for a little while and then it stays on the co coffee table and you never look at it again, right? Studies reveal that only 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. For over 40% of the people attending are, are reading their Bibles occasionally, and maybe once or twice a month, if at all. And then, in fact, 18% of attenders say they never read the Bible. And somebody, I told Chuck that the other day, and he said, well, how many of those people lied? <laughs> that they're, they're not really reading it that much, you know? It's true. It's true. This is a far cry than the intensity of ministers in Zurich in the 1500s who met together to examine the Latin Vulgate, the Hebrew and Greek text, to, to, to report on scholarship from rabbis and commentators across the spectrum. 
right? One thing I noticed when I was at Vinnie and Mary's church in Georgia when I went to visit them was that it was two miles from a seminary, and so a lot of their members were seminarians. And many, many of them, or all of them, were really steeped in the scriptures, and you could tell. It made a difference in them. Often the best way to uh, build habits is to invite others to share in this journey of faith. For instance, last week, challenge to memorize scripture, get somebody to memorize with you. Do it together. Do it together with somebody. Keep each other accountable. The, the encouragement, the knowledge, the accountability of fellow believers can make all the difference in, in walking. Disciple each other. Walk with each other, right? You have all the tools at your fingertips that you need to be well-versed in the scriptures, to walk this journey of faith out. You have Sunday mornings. This time, I believe, is very important. I think it's extremely important. I think it should be priority. And, I, and I, I, I'm saying some strong things, but don't walk out of here thinking, oh, you know, I'm all guilty. No, that's not my intention. My intention is to in, be invitational and challenging to you. Sunday mornings are uber important because it's one time where we worship and we pray together and we study together. So in my mind, make this priority. Get here. Get here on time and leave late. Get here early and leave late. Get around people. Meet people. Talk to people. Enjoy this time, right? Wednesday night community group. I know some people just can't make it that night, but if you can make it and you haven't yet, come. You will be blessed. If, 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 if 5 o'clock rolls around and you just got home from work and you're like, oh, I'm just too tired, don't let that happen. Don't let Satan rob your joy. Get here, because I guarantee you'll leave even just a little bit better, if not a lot better. Right? Amen. We have commentaries and books. I mean, I've got a program on my computer that has 50,000 Christian books on it. 50,000 Christian books. I've read them all. <laughs> I've exhausted it. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, Right Now Media, you guys have access to a free account of Right Now Media. There are thousands of resources, video resources on there, Bible study tools that you can look up and watch for 10 minutes and, and, and study something. You can use that with a friend and do that with, with questions with them. Bible apps on your phone, you can actually do you know, interactive things with other people through your Bible apps on your phone. It's just so easy. There's really no excuse in this day and age for, for us not to be well-versed in, in, in our study of the Word together. As we talked about in week one, our time with God and in His Word should be transformative in our hearts, right? That it affects how we live and how we engage the world, how we engage other people around us. And we remember the practices of meditation and memorization, right? We remember meditation was going into silence with the Lord, meditating on His Word, which leads to action. So silence leads to action. Hearing leads to doing. We're not just sitting there to get bigger heads. We're there to learn how to live the kingdom of God out, right? And what we hear from Scripture should help us in becoming that new self. Not only filling us up with knowledge, but living it out. As I just said, as, as we gather together to learn from God's Word, we don't want to become some little clique that, you know, just has all the right answers. That's not our goal. We don't strive to be pridefully intellectual about all things Bible-related. That's not our purpose, and we know it. Rather, we desire to become doers of the Word and not hearers only, James 1.22 
We seek to become people who worship the God that the Bible points us to, John 5, 39. We persevere together to become people who actually hear the word of God and keep it, Luke eleven twenty eight. And the biblical worldview, therefore, becomes the lens with which we view all of life. Because becoming new in Christ means living in light of God's word. And by studying scripture together in community, we grow on to spiritual maturity in Christ with the help of other Christians. Amen? Every first Sunday of the month, we practice communion together. And we invite anybody who has uh, made a profession of faith in Christ to come to the communion table and, and take of the elements. Uh, if you have not made that profession, don't be embarrassed. We come up, you know, piecemeal. Nobody's going to notice if you got up or didn't. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, and we wouldn't care if we did notice. Um, but we pray that you would, you would watch this process if, if that is the case. And, and maybe you would wrestle with these words. And if you ha- are sitting here and God is moving your heart to make that profession of faith, by all means, come grab me. We'll pray together and then you can come up and take communion. But uh, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he was, had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His body was broken for us, right? In the same way, verse 25, After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, this isn't some weird uh, thing. This is just a remembrance. There's nothing magical here, but it is a remembrance. And he says in verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a public confession, a public witness of what Christ has done for the world and in our lives. So let me pray as we, we do this. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that you loved us enough to bring us into relationship with you. We thank you for Ephesians chapter 2. We thank you for Colossians chapter 3. We thank you for 1 Peter and 2 Peter and Genesis and Joshua and everything else. All these, all these words on pages. We don't, we're not sitting here making an idol of them, an idol of a page on a book or a book itself, but we are absolutely in love with your word because we know that your word is you and you are your word. That what you say extends from your very being. So we ask that you would teach us, that you would make us open not only to learning, but to doing. And we ask that you would move in this moment now as we share this table together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So from now until the end of the service, take your time if you need to pray, if you need to confess something before the Lord before you come to the table, that's fine. If you need somebody to pray with you, by all means, we have people that are up front here that are ready to pray with you in the prayer room there or just right out here. Come grab somebody. Don't be embarrassed by that. Don't be shy about it. We all need it. I've gone up many times myself. Probably will today, actually. Um, but just just come and get prayer, and then at any time, come up to the table, just take the bread, dip it in the cup, and take it yourself when you're ready. Amen? Amen. <laughs>